Hey, it's Sarah reminding you to check out the Mina Kimes show featuring Lenny. This week, Mina kicks off her NFL divisional previews with the NFC South, and her guest is the great Warren Sharp. You can find the Mina Kimes show featuring Lenny wherever you get your podcasts. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. Well, that's what she said. Welcome to That's What She Said, conversations with interesting people from the world of sports, music, comedy, and more, talking about their lives, careers, successes, and failures. My name is Adam Pally, and I'm having trouble um, not being severely depressed every day. So you're not alone in this one, for sure. Uh, you know, between concerns about the coronavirus and what the world will look like as we reopen, to sadness over the people still fighting against equality and police reform in a better world to endlessly politically-fueled social media scream fests and then, you know, the occasional murder hornet and UFO spotting and all those other salacious reports, it's pretty hard not to get overwhelmed right now. And I would say for some people, getting out of that sort of negative spiral would require professional help. So if that's what you need, seek it out. It's okay to not be okay. Definitely talk to a therapist about your struggles. But in the meantime, if you don't feel like it's clinical, just give yourself a break and let yourself step away for self-care. Uh, in whatever form that takes, you know, self-care is not just a cheesy word made popular by, you know, blog writers and people selling you candles and vagina crystals. It's a it's a real ass thing. So you're no less of an activist or ally if you need to take a break and bake cookies or take a walk or do yoga or in my case, start Gilmore Girls all over from the very first episode. No judgment. You know, those breaks will actually give you the strength to speak out and educate yourself and take care of yourself and take care of others. And again, if if you're really, truly depressed, just call up an expert and, and get some help and talk to the people around you. The commish has spoken. My guest this week is American actor, comedian, and writer Adam Pally. He's most widely known for starring in Happy Endings and The Mindy Project, currently starring in the new show Indebted, also starred in the comedy Making History and was the executive producer of The President Show. Had a really fun, mostly conversation with him, but we also dived into a lot of what we're going through right now in our country. We talked about how his comedic career began with the morning announcements at his school, his college mascot, Narls, the Narwhal, who I am now obsessed with. Uh, why he really wasn't a fan of Inside the Actor's Studio with James Lipton was a uh, part of the college he went to. What it's like to be on a show that gets canceled and which of the cancellations in his career hurt the most. Also getting through the pandemic and protests and feeling guilty about his role as a Jewish man within that. Um, and of course, we also got into the fact that he punched Baby Yoda in The Mandalorian. It's a good interview. Hope you enjoy it. That's what she said. Super excited to have Adam Pally on. I feel like it's the last couple years or so that he just pops up all over the place on a lot of the things that I love. And eventually I was like, who is this dude? <laughs> Start <laughs> following him on social and figuring out who he is. Um, I think mainly the investment came from the Mindy Project because I am a certified obsessive over everything that Mindy Kaling does. I think she's brilliant. And I also love that she runs all of her own shit. Uh, she, yeah, she's, a, she's a boss. Genius. <laughs> she's a boss. Um, and you work with my friend Ike Barinholtz on that show. Um, love, love my dude. Brilliant dude. Um, so we'll get to the Mindy Project in a bit, but I want to go way back uh, to the beginning. So you're, okay. you're born and raised in New York City. Your dad's mm -hmm. a doctor and your mom worked at his office, right? Ran the office? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, the, well, actually, they started, they were um, in a rock band when I was a kid that like toured the uh, Catskills. Wait, is this um, real? Mm -hmm. uh, they were called Pally and Pal. Uh, and 
then when I was young, um, my dad had just kind of a rough year as an actor and he wasn't earning much as a musician. He used to play piano at like the Empire Diner and a bunch of spots in New York. And so, um, he quit the business and went back to medical school and we moved to Chicago, uh, where I, uh, was like growing up in Skokie for a while. And then when he opened a, a medical practice, it was in Florham Park, New Jersey. Oh, so you um, bounced around a lot. Okay. Yeah. I moved around you know a lot. You're that explains why you're funny. Cause obviously every, everything good comes out of Chicago where I'm from. Um, <laughs> a little bit, a little bit Skokie. <laughs> I got, I, you know, I claim Skokie. You can claim whatever. As I, I think uh, Hannibal Burris just said the other day, when all this is over, we're just not going to argue about suburbs versus city anymore. There's just bigger <laughs> things to fight about. We, you could be a part of it. It's okay. You yeah. Can, you can claim Skokie okay. and Chicago. Depending uh, well, on I don't mind being, you know, Skokie <laughs> as a Jew, Skokie was right. a, was kind of like a a stronghold for a while, um, especially with like the, the Nazi protests of the 80s. Yeah. Um, but uh, um so I, I feel kind of badass by claiming it. So I'll take it. <laughs> I like it. it. I'll take it. Um, okay. So you end up in New Jersey. And so is that mm-hmm. where you would say most of your formative years were or how yeah, long? Probably. You- it was probably a split between there and Skokie. Um, but uh, for the most part, New Jersey is where suburban New Jersey is where I was like kind of grown. And then you ended up, uh, what, what, what were you like in high school? Were you into sports? Were you uh, like a, a theater guy? Were you class clown? I was oddly similar to how I am now. Um, <laughs> I'm actually not. The uh, that checks out. I was I was one of those uh, kids. I was like a uh, could do a little of everything, but nothing great. Um, so I was like a decent athlete. Um, I had a few friends here and there. I was in a band. Um, a lot of that stuff, and um, but my main thing was I started doing the morning announcements um at my school had like a television studio where like you learn tv and stuff and so i um i started doing the morning announcements and i i made it into like a sketch comedy show and it got a little bit of a following around like not just the school but the town like people's parents and stuff liked watching it and so i um i like that was and i was at a young age so i kind of knew that this is what i was going to do from 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 insanely young, like like fourteen, fifteen. So you knew it was a career at that point because I always find it interesting when people are just kind of dicking around. Like I turned a sixth grade presentation into the McLaughlin Group, like uh-huh. wrong. Like yeah, I, and I, yeah. I, that's just because I loved SNL and I was dicking around. There was no part of me that was like I'm going to grow up and be a comedian at that point. But you knew, like you were you were actually I knew, yeah. Yeah, I knew like all my book reports in school were about like Jerry Seinfeld and, and, um, you know, uh, yeah, I knew what I wanted to do. I, I didn't really know how I wanted to do it because I didn't necessarily, at a young age, I realized that I wouldn't say I knew my privilege. I think it, I didn't know that till later, but I knew that my opinion was not like, I, I knew I wasn't going to be a stand up because I, I, that wasn't where my strength was right. like um, my strength was in like acting and, and other ways of getting my comedy across. And so, so like I was all always kind of headed into um, sketch and Saturday night live direction. I think. You end up um, at the new school. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me about that. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know much about the new school. I've heard of it. <laughs> but I don't know much about it. It's like, um, it's a vocational school. It's like, you know, the actor studio. 
Yeah. That's the the new school. Oh, okay. Um, and I believe it owns Parsons now too. Right. Um, which is a design. You go there. It's with- super intentional and artistic, and you go there to learn a vocation. Like I learned how to edit 16 millimeter there. I learned how to uh, do photography, like work a camera, and like I learned how all that stuff that that vocationally I could have gone into, you know. Um, but it, it's specifically about that. Right. Which is really smart. If you want to go into performance and don't make it, you have actually all the skills to do something within that same industry without. Yeah. Well, again, like I didn't have any friend when I, I had already started at the university of Arizona because um, I went to the university of Arizona for my first two years because I like to party. I was going to say that's usually the answer. I guess. And I didn't want to do anything admittedly. I, I didn't want to do anything. And I had um, privilege to be educated. And so I was like, I want to go to a big school and meet a lot of people and have a lot of friends. And because I didn't really get that. I moved around a lot of high school. I didn't have a ton of like close friends. So I um, did that. I d- dicked around for two years, hardcore, um, wasted a lot of my parents' money. They were not super happy. And then I made a, a short film and it got into the new school. And so when I got to New York, I didn't have many friends. Um, mo- in fact, most of my friends were like friends of friends. Uh, so I explicitly started taking all these production classes so that I could like make my own stuff. And then that's what I ended up doing as my senior thesis was like um, shooting a movie and like doing it all myself. Hmm. I can't tell you how many really successful comedians and actors have come on this podcast and basically been like, yeah, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And I didn't work that hard. And I kind of dicked around and I'm like, man, I really worked too hard. I had too much focus. What was I yeah. doing with my life when I wanted to grow up and be on SNL? And instead I, you know, became an English major at Cornell and, and, you know, well, that's not that like, I don't, yeah. I mean, I like well, what I'm I mean, doing look. now. It's just, sometimes I literally am listening and I'm like, man, if there's kids at home, they're like, okay, perfect. So don't work hard. Well, no, I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't say that. I mean, I think suburban, I think the, the education system is super flawed, you know, and I think that I was led to believe that if I went to college and majored in communications, um, it would be like an easy way to find something to do. And at that point, performing and stuff like that, it was like, not that I was being told I couldn't do it, but I was like a realist. I was like, you know, I'm a chubby Jewish kid. Like, you know, maybe I'll find something else to do. And I went to college and it wasn't until I found my, the thing that I liked that I was able to like kick myself into gear. And that is totally like, yeah, right. And that is totally a privilege of, of my, you know, of my upbringing Um, but once I did find it, I was able to work harder than, than like, I would say anybody, because I think most of my peers would say I'm not that funny. (laughs) So, uh, I was able to find a way. Um, can we talk about the mascot of the new school that I just looked up? Sure. I don't, I didn't even know they had one. Um, it is Gnarls the Narwhal. That sounds right. Like (laughs) what? Well, what is, isn't NYU's, what is NYU's, like, mascot? Like, it's like a, 
I think it's like a purple dragon or something. It's a bobcat? That seems pretty a bobcat. standard. A that bob- seems new. A bobcat seems, seems pretty normal. I, Gnarls the narwhal is wild, and I'm obsessed with it. And I'm sad <laughs> I'm just learning it. I'm, I'm upset I don't have any of that merch. You should get the merch now. I'm going to get it, and I didn't even go there. I mean, <laughs> that's solid. Um, so the uh, the actor studio did you did you get a chance to go there and interact with James Lipton? And I did. Um, it? it it sucked. Really? Okay, <laughs> tell me about it. Well, no, it's great. I mean, I always had a problem. Like acting classes are beneficial, but they are beneficial in not always the way that the people doing the classes take it from them. Um, and so a lot of those actory classes, like especially like the behind the actor studio ones, they're a little, they were a little like self-serving for me. And, but at the time, but the, the, at the time that I was going to the ner- the new school, I was at night um, already interning at upright citizens brigade. And I was there like seven nights a week and I was bartending there and I was, I was, just basically like picking up cigarettes and, and cleaning the floors and the, and the garbage and the toilets and stuff. And like, then I started doing lights there and everything. So I like, I was already the upright citizens brigade was like already had my focus in in a way. And so I saw a lot of that actory stuff for what it was, which was like, I don't know. It doesn't, it, it didn't make a lot of sense to me. Like I understand if you're a, a baseball player, you go to the minor leagues and you work your way up. But like, that is definitely not what acting school is. Like not a lot of your favorite actors were like drafted number one out of Yale. You know, there's just, that's just not what it is. There's the few you hear about that are like, Oh, I went to Stanislavski or I'm all method actor. And then there's the rest of them that are sort of like, it's, it's an it quality and a skill. It's just, it's still something that you work at. It's a vocation that you have to learn. Totally different kind of work maybe than, than what you were getting there. Yeah. It's a vocation that you have to learn, but you can kind of only learn it by doing it. And the cool thing is, is that anybody can can do it, especially now with like a phone. So like that to me always, especially at the time I was going, I was like 19 going to the actor studio. I was kind of like, man, like I get that you got to put on a leotard and wear a mask and bounce around and pretend you're a lion. But really it's like, that's only for the first time so that you're not embarrassed about right. ever doing that. And then once you do it, and you're like, oh, well, I'm going to be embarrassed. Like once the embarrassment factor goes and you're just like trying to be the best lion you can be, you never have to do that exercise again. <laughs> right, right. Then you can be in your skin and be okay with whatever you are, lion or, yeah, lion or otherwise. We, exactly. Yeah. And I feel like so many of those um, exercises and, and even scene studies, like that's the same kind of thing. So once you kind of commit to doing it, you just have to like really, really do it. You were already doing sketch while you were in school, right? You were at Upright yes. Citizens in New York. So yes. is, is that a common thing for people to be performing on the side while attending school? For me, it was. I mean, I my first roommate in New York City, my first, well, I, my first paying roommate was a kid named Doug Mand, who is now a, a, a terrific screenwriter and comedian and actor. Um, and his writing partner, Dan Greger, who um, is another terrific director and, and, and screenwriter and is actually now married to Rachel Bloom. Uh, but they were my first two uh, 
roommates and I had met them from through friends of a friend and they were in a sketch group at NYU called Hammercats. And Hammercats was um, a very large sketch group full of people who were all the same age. And I was lucky enough to be able to write for that group and submit sketches to them. And they did them a couple of times on stage at UCB. And then, you know, so it became kind of this community that was going to college, but also part of the UCB. And uh, those people included um, Donald Glover, Dominic Dierkes, um, you know, uh, a bunch of just really talented um, Fran Gillespie, who is now the head writer of Saturday Night Live. Um, you know, just like amazingly talented kids that I was lucky enough to meet when we were all 19. So you, you know, Donald Glover, and I'm curious when he was first on Twitter during his community years, his <clears throat> name on Twitter was at Don Glover, which also when read incorrectly, it was Dong Lover. And I'm curious if that was intentional. I don't think Donald does anything not intentional. That's true. Um, That's true. So it was probably just a way to get it over that like someone's going to make that joke. So right. let's just do it now. Put it out there uh, and um, use the name Don instead of Donald. But yeah, I don't think Donald, I don't think anything Donald has done is not intentional. I would never put anything past him. He's is- a superior intellect. Uh, that seems to be what comes from everybody who works with him. Um, and it's pretty incredible to go back and watch stuff like community and see the like little germs mm-hmm. of yeah. childish Gambino. It was, it was a real thrill on community and Donald and I still have this when we see each other that, um, our trailers were like kind of in the same area and our shows, happy endings and community were created by the same uh, people. So it was cool to like live that moment together, together a little awesome. bit. Um, yeah. And then obviously our careers went in different directions, but both wildly successful and well, that's different. Well, I would, no, I would say I no, I would say very just, you know, it's um, it's amazing to watch him. He's a he was a superstar from the moment I saw him. Yeah, it's always fascinating. And he's, only got, he's only grown when you're around people like that, and you're like, oh well, that person's gonna be a massive star. Like that's just clear. Yeah, it was. Yeah. It was. I knew it when we were nineteen. Yeah. Okay, so you're at UCB and you graduate from New York, or sorry, the New School. Um, what are the first couple things you do out of school? Because I mean, you graduated in '04, and you know you were really steadily working not long after that. Um, what was it like when you first hit hit the the free market? Um, quiet <laughs> for a little. Uh, you know, I again, I wasn't. I don't. Hollywood doesn't draft you. Even if you're like a promising young, which comedian. might be for the best, honestly, because if you got drafted to like the equivalent of the Browns or something, and then you were stuck there for a certain number of years, it's still the NFL. And I'm true, and you still have a paycheck, spiked. I guess, which yeah. would be better. Than um, I would have been psyched. <laughs> um, I, I had a pretty well. I had a pretty lucky. I um, I was working my way up at UCB and had been there in '04. I was already there for like almost three years. So I was just as I was graduating college, I was being placed onto like my first house teams at the theater and get, was getting attention from my teachers 
to be in their shows and not, you, you know, it, 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 the community kind of works like that where you like, you do one thing, it leads to another. So people like Paul Shear and Amy Poehler and Matt Walsh and stuff were like, kind of, I was moving through the, the theater at a, at a good pace. And in New York at that time, because it was such a hotbed of town, especially for Lauren and SNL, you, you, if you were a, a performer there, it, it became, and you, and you were started to do like Ask Cat, which was the big Sunday show. You, you had access, like people would come see you. And so I was lucky enough at a young age for someone to come see me and say they wanted to represent me. And then I started going on commercials and I, I think I broke my first commercial in like, Oh five. So, um, I, for my first couple of years, I was like a commercial actor. Um, and you can probably, I'm sure you could find them online. Um, but they're anything from like Staples to Verizon. Um, I'm trying to think who else, uh, Twix. I was the Twix man guy for like a year, um, with Thomas Middleditch. Um, you know, um, just like that was, uh, was how I, was how I survived. And that let me, luckily, like a commercial like that in those days could let you not, like, it could let you not have a real job for like a year. Yeah, absolutely. Those commercials, especially if they get, re, you know, re-upped and start yeah. running another. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So what would you consider your big break? Um, you are incredibly, I mean, you've done a ton of stuff. Your, your resume of TV and, and movies and a lot of, uh, voice work as well. Um, what would you say is the moment where you're like, okay, this is the big thing. Is it happy endings? I, yeah, maybe. I mean, I actually, I think I'm pretty lucky because I don't know if I've had like a super big break yet. I think I've like been lucky enough to like work steadily, um, without getting, without having anything really like blow up massively. Um, but uh, I think happy endings was in a weird way. Like I was, I was due something then because I had gone a couple years with like being this guy to almost get the pilot and this guy to almost get the pilot. And like people knew of me and in the industry. And I, I had just done, um, Ang, a big Ang Lee movie, even though I ended up getting edited out of it, oh. <laughs> uh, which is like, that's part of the road. Uh, so um, I was like, had a little heat and, um, and then I got happy endings. So I guess around there. I saw in a recent interview, you were talking about how you wanted to try to get a reunion together for that show. Is that something you're in the talks to do? Yeah, we actually just got over the weekend. It was a hectic weekend, but um we're going to do a reading of a new episode for charity. Oh nice. Um but we're trying to do it for the right charity for the right reason at the right time. So, but that script just got finished. So, um there will be some kind of Zoom Zoom reunion soon. Um but man, I would love to see those guys. Yeah. I just watched the community one. Um, and it, it was such fun to just see them all back together again. They didn't do a new episode, but still you could tell they were really excited to get, to get back together. Um, that, yeah. that cancellation was pretty tough, right? That was sort of unexpected. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if I've ever had a cancellation be unexpected, <laughs> um, <You had> it. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I think that it was a bummer because we had a following and the following is like, 
only grown in in the 10, 10 or so years that we've been off the air? Has it been 10 years? Jesus. Not quite, um, like seven or so. Yeah, so that I feel like it has only grown. Um, but uh, no, I mean, you, it's so hard to get any a show made. It's so hard to get a pilot to a series. It's so hard to get a series to a second season. So we had three awesome years, and yeah. um, I made the best friends. There. And there's so much content out there that you could actually have a really well done show, and you just still, if it doesn't pick up with the right, you know, dedicated mm-hmm. people. It's really hard to keep it going. Um, I've had that happen too. Yeah. <laughs> you did uh, a bunch of other stuff, including some of my faves like Key and Peel for a while before um, you ended up on Making History, which was quick. And then the Mindy Project, which was you weren't on all the seasons, but you were on several. What was that experience like and how did it differ from from Happy Endings? Well, uh, Mindy actually came first. Mindy was oh, my really? was my job right after I moved from Happy Endings to Mindy, and I really uh, was so grateful, and I loved working there. Um, it it was time to move on and try and step out on my own um, from that show. I had just done like two major ensemble things, and they were great, um, and I loved it there. And the, for me, the best part of Mindy was like I got to watch Mindy every day. And I got to work with her as an actor and then also um, like watch her writing and directing. It was just, it was on that level. It was, it was awesome. And I, I don't think I could have done the stuff I've done since then without those years. What kind of stuff? Like what, what were you learning for her from her? Well, just like how to run a show or how to get your, get your idea across um, how to not be like, talked out of something, how to steadfastly know that you're doing something right. Um, in the face of like a bunch of people telling you you're not, um, you know, just stuff like that. I mean, she, she's, she's amazing at having like a singular voice. And I feel like a lot of times when I would collaborate, I would be very quick to give that up because I, I like to, I like people like me. Mm. Um, and not that she doesn't, but I just, I, I have this like weird, I'm, you know, desperate for people to be like, he's so, he's he's not that funny, but he's so nice or whatever. It's like way better for me. But I, so I, um, I learned how to like really own that this is my job and that I'm, you know, if I am in charge, then I'm in charge and you need to learn that. Yeah. And I love, can I say, I love that you learned that from a woman who was all of those roles because it's, uh, it's not as common as I wish it was. And for her to be this person that's owning a voice and being de- definitive about it is really cool. I'm sure for all the people that work on that show and, and work with her. Well, I've, I've been lucky enough in my career to benefit from strong women, um, the entire time, uh, that I've been working. And so, uh, yeah, like I, I, I went from that show to a movie called Band-Aid that was written and produced and directed by Zoe Lister Jones and had an all female crew. Oh, wow. Um, and I learned an immense amount of stuff there and I was lucky enough to like be part of that, which was an amazing experience. Um, and just kind of like, I feel like I, I, I have had so many key, women in my life that I continue to work with um, from like Aubrey Plaza to Casey Wilson, you know, like women who are genius. And, and I 
enjoy being around them so much in their presence and I, and their strength. And so like, I feel like I've been lucky enough to learn how to lead from them. And I feel that there's a less, it's a less ego driven thing in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree with that for sure. Um, you just gave a quote recently about the, the new show that you're on that debuted in February indebted. And you said the first decade of my career, which I'm so fortunate for, I played a lot of lunatics. It's nice to, get to play a character, which is absolutely the same one of the bunch. And it's true. Obviously, um, happy endings and Mindy project, uh, some more lunacy and some more silly, but you were sort of the, 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 the butt of the joke kind of guy, um, the wild guy. Mm-hmm. Sounds like you in your career are transitioning, maybe even in life over to less of a lunatic and more of a sane person. Is that, is that a through line in work and otherwise? I, well, so look, I would hope that in these, uh, sobering times, uh, we would all be a little less of a lunatic. Um, but I am also getting older and I think, um, you just, you, I, I feel like if you're comfortable with who you are and the and the way that you're not maturing but aging, <laughs> I think that that there's always room. There's always room for who you are. Yeah. Well, I mean, you have three children, and mm-hmm. you are um, almost forty. Almost forty. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so it's not that it, so it's required. You could still be a lunatic late into life, but um, it's you interesting can. to you sort can. of feel like you wanted to have that presence on screen as much as in real life. Um, Abby Elliott is your wife on that show, and uh-huh. I'm obsessed with her and her father, of course. But um, she she is an example of uh, of someone who was on a show that I thought was so brilliant, and yet for some reason was canceled. I would imagine in, in your career that when you see something brilliant that doesn't last, it makes it easier when something that you're on doesn't make it. Does that make sense? Uh, like if you're able to see something and say, okay, that, that, you know, I, th- people are just morons and they don't get it. And that's why that show it goes. does. Odd mom out to me is a billion times funnier than a lot of shows that are on for years and people make millions. And I'm like, who the f- is watching this? trash no i i loved odd mom out too uh and i love jill carmen and my wife and i um when when we were even like talking about casting indebted the abby's name was the first one the only one really um i feel like um it never gets easier uh when you lose a show but it's also in this climate it's part of the job like season two is like lucky enough to get to do a sequel of a movie you know you there's so many tv shows and they they change so frequently and they're picked up and then they're not picked up and there's so much stuff out there that like you're just lucky to be out there and so um while i've had a couple that i really loved and specifically i did this show um a year ago called champagne ill on YouTube with the creative team behind happy endings and Sam Richardson from uh, Detroiters and veep. And I mean, I worked on the thing for, for half a decade mm. to get it, to get it going. And we got one season and in the middle of doing the season, YouTube as a streaming service, like shuts down. Oh so you're like, you're left at the, at the mercy of that. And like right now that shows behind a paywall, no one's seen it. And it truly is like to me, one of the funniest things I've ever done in my career. 
and no one has seen it. Um, so mm-hmm. like that, that is more frustrating to me than a show that comes out and it, and people saw it. And for whatever reason, whether it be pandemic or, um, a different network president doesn't work. I wanted to ask you about that because you, you've been mentioning sort of the time we're in and that could mean any number of things because we're mm-hmm. in like the shittiest timeline ever. Um, as somebody I saw on Twitter wrote, like whoever, whoever's writing the script for 2020, like it's a little overwrought. Like we, too many things. We got to take out some of these plot lot. points. It's a lot. Um, but you've been posting a lot on your social media about George Floyd and ways for, for white people to get engaged and to help. And obviously we're layering that on top of what is already um, an incredibly depressed economy and people because of coronavirus. In fact, it's sort of hard for me in my brain right now to, to like be able to reconcile protests of people in big groups when we're still all supposed to be social distancing. Like it's, I don't even know where we prioritize the things that we're supposed to be concerned about and and that are affecting us. Um, And as a comedian and a performer, you're doing some comedy benefit stuff and you're um, trying to be active. Uh, How difficult is it to not have things be taping, to have things be put on hold, but also to understand that like those are tiny problems compared to people who have no job or who are struggling just to kind of put food on the table. Um, Yeah, I think everything, I think uh, it's a very challenging time. And I think the, it is a fair question about like, for me, I'm having a lot of guilt with the question of whether, of where I should be. Um, because I'm a parent with three young children who are out of school and I'm homeschooling them and I'm trying to give them the basic fundamentals of the English language and math and stuff. And at the same time, you know, um, these, these people have been robbed of that experience Mm -hmm. by the police of this country and I need to, I feel like part of me needs to be there to support the people that are suffering. Um, because not only are they my, my friends and my family, but I've, but I've benefited greatly from African American culture my whole life because I love it. I love, um, what it represents and what it is. And so, um, and as a Jew, I'm especially, disheartened because I can't find a ton of great stuff um, from my own community and my own uh, community feels slightly quiet um, during these protests for whatever reason. And so I feel um, a lack of like, I'm not calling enough of the right people out on their stuff. You know, it's, um, it's a really tense time. Uh, And I wish I had more, of a like positive um, spin on it, but um, I don't. Yeah. I don't. I get your feeling. It feels like to me, especially if you are from any group that has been disenfranchised or held down, that you should be as loud and vocal about other people who are experiencing the same. I feel that way about women and white feminists and white women have long been um, properly and accurately criticized for not being as vocal about 
you know, black women's and their black women and their lived experiences and the ways that feminism should be intersectional. I feel that way about like, like you said, your, your Jewish background, like it's really hard for me to understand how anybody who's experienced it themselves isn't front. You know, I, I feel that way about um, minority men who don't speak up for women. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like I, I don't yeah, get it. I, I don't get it. I don't get it. I don't get it. And I've no, and I, I notice a lot of it in, my parents, the people, my parents age. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like, like, um, it's disappointing, uh, and, and clueless a little. And so it's, it's hard to reconcile a ton of that. Um, yet at the same time, I was having a conversation yesterday with my wife's grandfather, who's 95 years old, who was a veteran, uh, was in Nagasaki and, is begging me to drive him into New York so that he can, I can wheel him to a protest. Wow. And I honestly would have done it if it wasn't a pandemic. And I didn't know, like, I have to also keep him alive. Right. So I would have done it. I was there. And like the way we were talking, it was like, we were going to, I was going to get in the car with a 95 year old veteran yesterday and drive to Manhattan and get stand there with him. Because we both were sitting there like tears running down our face being like, how, what, what, how, how are the rest of the Jewish community not having this impulse as well? It's really hard and it it's hard to not feel performative even when you post about on social media because you want the action to be as loud as, as the words that you're putting out there. Um, but so much of that. I mean, I've definitely, sure. I've definitely had that thought. I've definitely had that thought. Um, I think, I think you would be, it would be, insensitive not to. However, to me, this feels like one of those situations. And I, I would love if someone doesn't feel this way, then, then tell me and I'll change my behavior. But I feel like that voice in your head is, is the, is the voice telling you it's not me. So I don't need to say it. Mm. And you don't have to be performative in it, you can tone yourself down. But if you're a performer and you want to be, all right. <laughs> I mean, like, do do whatever you have to do to say the right thing and get the right message across and get the right and get the money to the right people. Yeah, I think that's um, a big part of it. Is if you have funds, put them to the people that are doing the work. And if you don't, at least educate yourself and you know be be intentional about the way that you help, um, so that it it's. Even if it's rooted in, in all the right feelings, if, if you don't educate yourself on, I think sometimes people can be misdirected in the way that they try to, to help or be active. Um, I think so too. Yeah. And, and you, and be careful about it, you yeah. know, and don't think that like retweeting something is helping if you don't know it. Um, if you Especially don't, since you know, there's like, a lot of fake shit out there, which is really scary and awful, but there are so many other powers that are trying to muddy up the messaging, um, that you can accidentally, you know, yeah, this is, this is a cause that I will say, at least for me, like, and I'm a very cynical person. So most of the time when I'm, when I go on Instagram or whatever, and I see a friend of mine who will throw something up, that's like a cause that's been like spread around even the most dire, there's a part of me that is like, what is this person doing? saying that they're they've never experienced anything Mm. like that i don't feel that way when i see a black lives matter post or a a link to bail companies i don't feel that way 
because it feels like it feels like good that that right. it's good to know you know i feel I it's good about it i feel i i don't get that like tinge of ooh you know it feels like good i'm glad that you're on the right side i'm glad that you're not saying all lives matter i'm glad about that you know yeah. So, um, and it feels obvious say, too, as sad as that is, cause it's clearly not, but it's not, but it's not, not obvious, but it it's feels at like, least and, like, Oh, you're, it's just humanity. You're just being a human being. So that's never, feels, yeah, it's, it's sad that it's not obvious, but when I someone know. says it to me, I'm like, yes, because obviously, so I don't feel like it's ever fake or on, you know, like it's unearned in terms of sharing that thought because it should be how we all feel. But, but you're right. I mean, it's clearly not, um, not it's not. Out. And you can tell by just like the, you know, I've posted stuff and I've had to delete and block so many comments. Yes. And that alone lets me know that it's not obvious. Yeah. Okay. Because, and that's why it's so nice. That's why it's so nice to see these things. And that's why I don't feel a tinge of, you know, I hope they're not being performative or whatever, because, you know, performative as it may be, the sentiment Black Lives Matter is important. Mm-hmm. And and it's important for people to hear it. Yeah. I, I, I think, but I, I not, not, and not judging. I don't want to like stand on a soapbox, but I do, but I feel like I would feel like if I didn't say something, I would be saying nothing. And that's kind of where we're at right now. This idea that it's not good enough to not be racist. You have to be actively anti-racist because the passiveness in just not speaking out or not engaging with other people about their feelings um, doesn't solve any problems and has gotten us nowhere across generations of merely just saying, well, it's not me doing it. So I'm going to sit it out. Um, I think that's a big, hopefully kind of sea change that we're seeing right now. Um, yeah. Uh, and there are little ways to help. Like I, you know, I, um, have put some links in my email signature just so like when people get my email, they, they have a link that they can click on. That's not my own website. That's just like a link to something that, uh, I believe will help the situation. I, I, you know, I think things like that little ways are just important, you know, because you never know who's going to get that email and who's going to make a donation and who's going to, you know, I think that that's, I think little things like that change your, your, the link in your Instagram bio, put up, put up a, uh, a charity there. You know, like it sounds so small, but it, those are small changes of everyday behavior that can help. Yeah. I completely agree. It feels very uh, powerless and helpless right now, but um, there are plenty of people telling you what you can do. And so uh, we can take action on it. Uh, switching gears before I let you go, because, uh, we need to address a couple things that will leave people feeling lighthearted, um, motivated by our conversation, but also lighthearted. So, um, you punched baby Yoda and I can't let you go without acknowledging <laughs> that you can punch baby Yoda. I'm sorry. Um, please explain the story of, of leveling an icon. Well, first of all, I didn't know he was going to be an icon when I hit. When <laughs> you had I hit to have him. assumed when you saw f***ing Baby Yoda how I adorable it was that it was going to take on a certain level of power. I did not know. <laughs> I thought he was cute, but honestly, I did not know. It's like a, um, what city was directing it and he wanted to make sure it looked like I was punching something. And, you know, um, it was, uh, it was a great thrill. It is a little, it, it is a little disheartening that like, um, you know, I've, I, I've been in the game for about, for almost a decade now. And, uh, 
so like when you go to do promotional stuff, sometimes there'll be people who like ask you to sign pictures of yourself. And since I did the Mandalorian, um, all the pictures that I sign of myself are, you can't see my face. Uh, because no one wants to talk about anything else. So it's just me signing like a random stormtrooper or bike scout. And it's a little bit of a bummer because I'm like, this could have been anyone. <laughs> but deep down, you know, it was you, you know, it was. Yeah. But some of those thoughts are the digi. Best. I don't know where I am and where the computer takes over. You know? <laughs> um, so what, what's, I know you have, I think DuckTales, uh, you were working on with, uh, with my buddy. Danny yeah. Danny. I got a great, I got a great, uh, little run in DuckTales coming up and I was very excited about, um, very excited about doing it. Did they keep the original song? Because that is the thing I remember most about watching DuckTales in my youth. They did. They kept the original, <laughs> original song. Shout out to Schwartz, Ben Schwartz for having me in another one of his projects. Nice. Um, um what else? What else is coming up for you? Is there anything we can see on the horizon? Um, well, I got a movie on Netflix right now called The Main Event. Um, that is a WWE movie that's really fun that you can catch now. Um, and, uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm, and I'm hopefully live, I hopefully live through the pandemic. Right. That's a good goal for all of us. That's enough work right there. I um, honestly, for the sure. odds, are, odds are not great. But. <laughs> Last couple of days, I've been mostly useless, and I've just had to allow myself to be mostly useless and spend my time on on social media and engage with. I mean, people. I start drinking early these days. <laughs> early. Uh, all right, before we let you go, you have to do the one thing that everybody does and nobody expects. Didn't expect the kind of Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. It's the Spanish Inquisition. Number one. Ooh, tough name for a Jew. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's Monty Python, you know, but, uh. Yeah. Oh. Wow. Wowee. <laughs> uh, let's play Holocaust. <laughs> Number one. What's your Desert Island album? You can only have one. Aquemini Outcast. Ooh, nice. Number two. What habit or quality do you think has contributed most to your success? Um, the, a need to be loved. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. It's good. Uh, number three, what would you consider your biggest failure? Uh, I've had so many. Um, uh, I'm like, I don't think I've failed hmm. yet, really. So I think everything's a success so far. It's just how you look at it. Yeah, it's interesting. A lot of people I have on, that's the one that they struggle with the most. And that's because um, I think most people who are successful pivot off of quote unquote failures and turn them into something positive or at least don't dwell on them. So it's hard to remember. Uh, hard. To yeah, remember. I just don't. I also like it also feels slightly it would feel slightly tone deaf to say that something's a failure when I'm lucky enough to work in this industry. And, and it got to you where know, you are somehow. Yeah. So like, I don't know if I, I mean, I've had things not work, but I don't think I fail. I don't think anything's a failure. Number four. Have you ever been in a fist fight? Yes. Several. Are you usually administering the blows or receiving them? Or both? Uh, receiving, receiving. I don't, I don't think I've ever landed a punch <laughs> in a fist fight. Other than baby Yoda. You really? Yeah. But, that, but he it. wasn't fighting back. Special occasion. Um, number five, if you could switch lives with anyone for a day, who would it be? My kids. 
Interesting. They have it so good. Because <laughs> you they just want it. to be waited on and served. They have it so just everything. They're just like, can I have a bagel? Yeah, sure. Here's a bagel. Good, I'll make it for you. Can I have a, can I have a uh, OJ and sparkling water spritzer? Sure, I'll get that for you. You don't have to get up. You stay right where you are. I have four hours of school today, but I need help on Zoom. Oh, sure, I'll help you out. Do you remember that when like a, a a day of classes was like, oh, I have such a busy day. I have two classes. <laughs> I know. I like. I and then look I have at, to and sit then, around then, a then, table with my friends and drink and then go out. <laughs> yeah, and then they're like, oh, I'm so tired. I'm like, tired. <laughs> you woke up and I started cooking. Yeah. <laughs> um, number six. What's the most embarrassed you've ever been? Um, uh, I'll try to do this story as in a, in a truncated fashion, but when I, when I was growing up, obviously, because my, my dad switched careers later in life, he had a lot of student debt, so he didn't have a lot of money. So the only way that I could go to a sleepaway camp, which my parents like desperately wanted me to go to was that my dad would have to work off campus as like the physician for the oh. sleepaway camp wow. and like live in a, in a house. And like, so, um, it was sleepaway camp, but like my, my dad, my mom, my sister were there. It was like kind of, you know, and I would get made fun of quite a bit. So one year I decided I wasn't going to tell anybody that my dad was a doctor. Um, and that year they involved him in the breaking of color war and in the breaking of color war, like the plot was that the head of the camp was attacked by a bear and the doctor had to like run across the field and, um, like resuscitate the head of the the camp. And when my dad came, when they called for the doctor and my dad ran out, people um, started saying that he ran like me. (laughs) And then they were like, that's Pally's dad. I was like, shit. There are so Uh, many levels to that. (laughs) And I was, and then they just like, I was like the poor kid. And then I ran funny. And Oh, it's and meanwhile, not, your dad's like f-ing hustling so you can go to camp. Yeah, my dad's like hustling, working, yeah, as the phys- oh. physician of the camp and then do, being a good sport and doing and color reviving war. And the, I'm the so mean murder. to him. I was like, you're embarrassing me. So what were you more embarrassed by, the moment or the, later looking back at the way that you treated him? I, I was not embarrassed by the way that I treated him. I was very, I was like, very, <laughs> no, I mean, totally. looking back, I remember once no, I, still looking I like, back, made I'm not fun of my mom for like bringing orange slices to field hockey. Cause she did or said something embarrassing and I still feel guilty about it. And she doesn't even remember it. She's like, I don't even remember that. I'm like, I just feel nah. like an asshole. You were just, you know being helpful. Times, yeah, no, 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 I don't, I, as a parent now, <laughs> the amount of times that my kids are viciously mean to me. Like I can't even Maybe count. That's it. I don't have kids. I just have dogs and they're never, yeah, I don't me, so. <laughs> no, I don't harbor that. But I, but I was embarrassed. Um, a because immediately I was like, "Do I have a weird run?" If they were able to identify me. <laughs> the answer is clearly yes. Run, but I don't. I'm fairly athletic. No, I'm it's my, head, it's my head size. I think it's like <laughs> I have this enormous head, and when I'm running, it looks like my body's moving, but my head isn't. Uh, and I guess my dad is the same thing. And then, and then, and then, once they found that out, you know, kids can be cruel. Of course. So there was like they they realized why my dad was a doctor oh. and why I didn't I didn't ha- I only had like one set of sandals. Yeah, you kept wearing the same umbros, and they caught on. Um. Yeah, but everyone did. But mine were like fake. Mine, mine were like gumbros. Uh, number seven. What's the thing about yourself you'd most like to improve? 
My midsection. <laughs> Ditto. <laughs> I feel like I'm, especially now I'm like flabbed up and <laughs> I feel like I was getting kind of in really good shape right before this. I was boxing. I was going to a boxing gym and then this happened and I was like, it. <laughs> yeah. Everybody's <laughs> kind of vacillating between no excuses. Now's a great time to get in shape. And it's like, no, pizza is the only no. thing that's going to get me through this. <laughs> it's not a great time to get in shape. <laughs> it's really not. It's actually the worst. <laughs> well, I'm, now that you said that I'm letting myself off the hook. You should. This is the first <laughs> time to be exercising. What are you doing it for? We're not going anywhere. <laughs> no, we are wearing sweatpants yeah. every day. Um, Number eight, if you could be commissioner of life for a day, what one rule would you enforce that all of society would have to adhere to? Commissioner of life for a day. Uh, Legalize weed, maybe? Everywhere, not just certain states. Yeah, no, no, I've got to fully and expunge the records of the yeah. people incarcerated. I like and that then, one. And then pump up our economy and everyone can have a big party. Yeah, and then celebrate with a huge dube. Yep. Um, number nine, what's the most scared you've ever been? Um, I, well, I have kids, so I get scared on the daily. Yeah. Um, so it's hard to say now. Like, I, I mean, it used to be like, I, you know, I almost fell off a boat or whatever. But, like, now it's like, you know, uh, I freaked out the other day when I didn't know where my son was for a second. <laughs> but, like, I had that. It felt way worse than anything I've gone through. I bet. Um. Number 10, what three words would you most hope that people would use to describe you? Um, kind. Uh, warm. And funny. Sounds like a very nice person. Sounds like what you've always wanted people to, to see you as. I, I mean, wasn't that the question? Yes, it was. <laughs> yeah. It was the question. Yeah, yeah. it's just so the through line for you. So you really, you really nailed it. <laughs> yeah, no, I think I'm honest in that. <laughs> um, finally, who should I have on this podcast? Who's funny or interesting or smart or cool? Have you had Yasser Lester? I have not. Oh, he's the funniest dude uh, to me right now. He was um, making history with me, and he's on a show called Black Monday right now. Um, he's great. Uh, any of the cast of happy endings, uh, anybody, any, you know, I got a lot, anybody I've ever worked with pretty much, should have on. they're all great. Actually just name the ones I shouldn't have on that you work with who aren't great. Let's do that. That would be easier. <laughs> Let's go the down the list. You shouldn't, you shouldn't have on. all the assholes you've ever worked with. That's what she said. It's time once again for South bitch sessions where I rant about something that bothers me and I fix it this week. Bras. Are you guys still wearing them? And why? I mean, I guess I'm still for bras in stores and restaurants and coffee shops in the office. And, you know, of course, sports bras for sports activity. I'm not a masochist, but bras at home, which is where we all are pretty much all the time now. Why? One day if I snap, it's probably going to be about this because underwire. I mean, yeah, super useful. I'm thankful for whoever invented it. But damn, does that shit get uncomfortable? No, thank you. Just to walk around my house. I'm good. I'm just going to be free boobing it till society opens back up. All right, I feel good about what we accomplished today. Bras are dumb and useless when you're at home, unless you're exercising or going downstairs at a high rate of speed. I forgot about that one. Other than that, not wearing it. There, I fixed it. If you got a dilemma for the commission to fix, tweet it to me at Sarah Spain or go to the iTunes or podcast app. Subscribe, rate, review, leave the dilemma in your review, and maybe I'll fix it on a future episode.
Thanks, as always, for lasting about an hour with me. That's what she said. <laughs> <laughs>